My name is John Lohman. I am 37 years old. I'm the state folklorist of Virginia, and today is May 24th, 2005. We're at the Library of Congress, and I'm here with Joe Wilson, who is a, really a hero of mine, a mentor, and uh, occasional uh, taskmaster. <laughs> <laughs> My name is uh, Joe Wilson. I'm the chairman of the National Council for the Traditional Arts. I'm uh, 67 years old, and uh, today is still May the 24th, 2005. We're at the front of the Library of Congress, the James Madison Building, sitting in a little box uh, on wheels that rolls around, and uh, I'm supposed to answer questions, I guess. Yeah, well, maybe I thought of a fun question to start with, Joe, is just what do you think of this here? I mean, you're you're such a, somebody who is, uh, you know, has had such an important role in recording and recording uh, particularly folks who often have not had their voices recorded, both musically and other ways. And what do you think of this whole operation here? This It seems much too easy. Uh, 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 I, I didn't start with one of those things in the back of a car that... Alan Lomax hauled around, but uh, I did have a Revox HS77 prototype uh, recorder that I carried, uh, and it was uh, it was a heavy beast, you know. Uh, and sometimes I remember carrying it uh, in Eastern Kentucky. Something's going wrong with rain this fine us. building. Here. You know, this thing's supposed to be soundproof, you know. I've never heard that noise before. There's a gremlin in the wall here eating at it. You know, he's mm. going to chew it all up. But that's all right. The hell with yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> I've never been in a... Re- it proves, once again, there's never been a recording situation that something wouldn't interfere with, that's you right. know. <laughs> Even if you do it in a, a studio locked inside a cave. At any rate, I started recording with the HS-77s and things like that, which weighed about... up. Nearly a hundred pounds, and uh, I remember carrying one across a swinging bridge in eastern Kentucky in the middle of the winter, and there was ice on the bridge, and you're carrying that beast, and it's a hmm. it was, it was and what were you recording at that time? Virgil Anderson, great old Kentucky banjo player, long since deceased, but a marvelous player and a great guy. Joe, you you uh, you know came into this world in a little town of Trade, Tennessee. Actually, Creston, uh, North Carolina, which is about six okay. or seven miles from uh, from Trade. Uh, Creston is on the upper reaches of the New River, at what is called the head of the river, the beginning of the New River. New River, of course, is a terribly misnamed river. It's the oldest river in North America, and it flows north, and it rises on Snake Mountain just above where I was born and flows north across Virginia and and, uh, West Virginia to the Ohio River. All the old rivers flow north, the Nile, uh, and the New, and several others. But uh, uh, my family had been there. My mother's family, Sutherland's, had been there since the colonial uh, period, you know. So uh, when my father and mother were married, uh, my father borrowed $100 from my grandmother, his mother-in-law, and built a 
with his hundred dollars out of chestnut scrap lumber, a two-room house. So both my older brother and I were born there in, in the Blue Ridge. A few years later, we moved across the state line to Trade, Tennessee, where uh, his family had been, again, since uh, the colonial period. Uh, the trading ground is there. You find the earliest mention of the trading ground in uh, William Byrd's book, The History of the Dividing Line, written in 1728. He mentions pack traders coming from eastern Virginia to the mountains to trade with Indians. And the trading ground was, there were several trading grounds, many of them, in fact, and it had probably been used by Indians before pack traders came there. But mm. What was trade like as a, trade as a place to grow up in? I mean, give us a, just kind of a snapshot of what life was like there. Well, at the time that I grew up, uh, it was still... Uh, uh, fairly remote, you know, there was one two-lane road that had been paved for a few years that trailed through there, full of hairpin turns. But we were living, a, uh, we, we had a farm there, and our agriculture was much like agriculture was in the late 1800s elsewhere in the country. My father was still, we, we grew some grain crops, wheat and oats, still cutting that with a cradle, you know, a thing that goes back to biblical times, that finger cradle. And uh, we uh, grew our, our own uh, food, uh, uh, vegetables and so forth, our own uh, animals. Uh, we had a cash crop, tobacco, that we grew there. And we also grew some uh, Vegetables that we sold, snap beans, green beans, uh, some strawberries, tomatoes grew very well there. But mainly it was uh, tobacco and uh, cattle and, uh, and uh, but it was, a, it was an old form of, of agriculture. And I got started in work when I was six years old. I was the water boy. And from then on, you had a job there. The, uh, the, the leisure of uh, childhood hadn't quite re reached the Appalachians when I was being raised. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I imagine somebody listening to this maybe 50 years from now and they know Joe Wilson as a man who, you know, prowled the halls of Congress and uh, went down to the South during the Civil Rights Movement and did such important work there and Madison Avenue and all of these parts. How did you envision... Uh, when did, as a, as a young person living in trade, did you ever envision, uh, imagine another kind of life? How, how, how did you kind of get from A to A to B like that? If I had to name the things that were really important, I would say it was the bookmobile. So it's really uh, nice that this is being done for the Library of Congress, which is a keeper of books. The holiest place on earth to me is that place, and I've never been there, but I intend to go sometime in Alexandria in Egypt where the ancient library stood. Mm. The bookmobile came to trade. I went to a two-teacher school two miles up a dirt road, and uh, the uh, teachers there had not been to college. They'd graduated from high school and taken a how-to-teach course. And they were local women, and 
they were they were fine, but they had you know twenty five kids each in a room, and they had four grades each of them, and that's a considerable task, you know. They had a big stove. I built the fires there. Uh, we had a big stove, and we had uh, those schools are again like those of the eighteen hundreds, and we had outhouses and uh, tree swings and all kinds of things of of that sort. But the bookmobile came, and the bookmobile uh, dropped off some books, and uh, those overworked women had jobs for each uh, child. And when I was in the, uh, I think I was in the second grade, I could read a bit, so they put me in charge of what we call our library. It was a bookshelf, and the, the bookmobile would come, and we would fill it up with books from the bookmobile and they would choose some for us and we got to choose others and uh, I checked the books in and out and I thought because I checked the books in and out that I should read all of them reading all of those books and I, I was such an avid reader that the bookmobile people uh, liked me so they would drop books off for me in the summer so uh, I was reading uh, sometimes 300 books a year mm. so uh, that made a difference, mm -hmm. and uh, you uh, and and no one guided my reading much. You know, I I was all over the map. Mm -hmm. I read uh, when I was in the seventh and eighth grade. I became interested in anthropology, so I read everything I could about Egypt. Uh, you know, I read read about Egypt for years and years. You know, and all of the early anthro anthropology. Um, didn't seem to make any difference. No one paid much attention other than me until a few years later I enrolled at Lees McCray College and uh, and uh, I enrolled two weeks late because I needed a uh, uh, I needed a little more uh, money and I, I we didn't have SAT uh, uh, things at that point so I was working my way through so. Uh, I enrolled late, and my history, our history professor, History 101, World History, he had started in the Tigris and Euphrates River Valley civilizations and the standard stuff about Egypt. And he'd been teaching diligently for two weeks, and here's a schmuck who comes in two weeks late. So he gives a pop quiz that day, so our grade gets based on the the pop quiz. So... Uh, 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 he makes some kind of sarcastic remark, and then he writes three questions on the blackboard. And I look at them. They're actually pretty simple questions. They're about things I know about. So uh, that was when the the reading came in handy. Uh, mm -hmm. I terribly impressed that fellow. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, your relationship with music. I mean, I think that uh, when you look at the body of your work, you know, it so often it comes back to music, the traditional music. It's not just of this country, but all over the world. And uh, you're not a musician yourself. Well, a little. Huh? Well, I used to play bass a bit, and uh, I know a few chords on a guitar. And uh, I come from a family of musicians. And actually, I think I'm not patient enough to practice music. I, I'm a little hard on myself if my fingers don't do what my ears say they should. So. Uh, but I have a guitar at home, and I 
sometimes get it out from under the bed in the morning and play some chords and sings. My little dog Jake sits there and listens and sits on his butt and uh, looks at me. And then he'll walk over and sit by the door and say, I've listened to that stuff. You should give me a walk. <laughs> can you remember, uh, is there a specific moment maybe that you can remember where this music kind of captured your imagination and led you in the direction that you, you went in with your career? I can remember when I was a little boy and the musicians in the in the family, my great aunt Sally, my grandfather's uh, sister, played an old wood uh, uh, banjo, an Appalachian banjo, unfretted groundhog skin top on it and a, uh, a maple body. And uh, she did old ballads and she sang and I liked that. Uh, my uncle Will played in guitar and had a rack-mounted harmonica and used some nice songs and uh, and did that. My uncle Alpha loved the the fiddle, and he wasn't a a great player, but he was he was uh, engrossed with that. I can remember music at uh, our house when I was a little boy, and I was so small that I was sitting under the table. But I can remember the feet of the musicians and the sounds, and so it's among my earliest memories. Music, you know, is a uh, is an ability to hear, uh, among other things. It's an ability to tell when something's in tune and when it's out of tune. They're absolutes. You you reach for the note and you miss it, or you hit it. It's in tune or it's out of tune. The timing works. The timing doesn't. It's uh, it's an ability to hear, and for some reason. I was I had a gift with with that. I can tell when something's working. Most people don't choose their music by hearing. They choose it by social context. They by uh, their generation, what they're listening to. It's a socialization thing. I don't think I ever chose music that way. Well, perhaps I, I, I chose a, a kind of folk music and and I became in, engrossed with folk music. And I grew up in that, and so that is a socialization. But uh, I quickly learned that there were other people who had musics that grew from the same kinds of roots. Uh, but but a lot of the stratification of music is based on on uh, social things that uh, they they work to some degree for the music, and in other ways they don't. Um, take it, give you a bad example. A few years ago. Uh, in New York, uh, uh, the Metropolitan Opera became the darling of the Fortune 500 companies. And if you were in a top Fortune 500 company, you needed to be on the board of the Metropolitan Opera. But those those guys decided that they knew something about music too. So uh, they 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 uh, they kept picking uh, what what happened, and, and they turned it into a performing arts museum. They almost destroyed it. Thankfully, it got past that, and that was a, a long time ago, and I probably shouldn't bring it up, but <laughs> but uh, 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 they, they're, being where they were in their, in their company, they were supposed to be on this board, and then, which gave them the idea that they might know something, which they didn't really know at all. <laughs> So you've worked with so many musicians over the years, so many greats that have uh, passed on, and others that are still with us. Any stand out to you? Uh, you know that you hold clo hold most dear 
from your experiences, be it with the festivals or with touring and any of the trips you've been on? Oh, I've worked with uh, uh, there. There's so many; it's hard to know where to start. That uh, I uh, I roomed once uh, for a, a whole tour with Howard Armstrong, the black uh, violinist from uh, La Follette, Tennessee, uh, an aficionado. He's, he was Appalachian like me, but he was also played some jazz and and uh, everything else. And he he would wake up early in the morning, and I had a Martin guitar with me that I was carrying as an extra guitar in case you know someone broke a string out on stage. I'd have that beast in tune, could walk right out there and stick it on them, you know, so we could keep the show going. And uh, but uh, I carried the the beast along with me, and uh, and uh, Howard would wake up every morning very early, a couple of hours before I was up, and he'd sneak over and get the guitar and sit there and finger pick, and I'd have these two-hour concerts of stunning uh, uh, blues and jazz with Armstrong on the guitar. Mm. Yeah, I never got him recorded, which I... He, there were lots of records of him, of course, with the violin and with Martin Bogan and Armstrong and the, the keys and the other people he recorded with. But that solo guitar on the on the Martin never, so far as I know, got recorded. And I'm, uh, I'm sorry about that. And you took so many of these musicians, a lot of these traditional musicians, to some pretty exotic places, uh, some places that had, probably had never... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Tell we us a little were, bit about some of those trips. Well, uh, 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 great moments. Uh, I remember one in Papua New Guinea. They have the Sing Sing at Port Moresby every uh, uh, summer. And uh, uh, Papua New Guinea, you know, is full of uh, uh, literally a, a Stone Age people who met uh, Western uh, civilization, any kind of civilization other than their own, in the 1930s. And uh, there are 800 languages there. These are not dialects. These are fully formed languages. Uh, one talks. I mean, a one talk is a language group. Maybe only a thousand, eight hundred people speak it, or maybe two or three thousand. But, but a fully formed uh, language. At any rate, there are all these remote people that are brought together for singing and dancing and so forth together in Port Moresby. They're about. 30,000, 40,000 people come. And I was there with an American uh, Indian troop, and uh, they, those people know very little about North America, but they do know that there are an indigenous people here, and they think those indigenous people are like them. So I had these uh, Lakota people and Zuni people. So we, uh, uh, we were starting the show in the... The uh, diplomatic people who were with us were saying, now, they, they may not listen to you at all, you know. Well, they sure misjudged those people because they listened very raptly. And the uh, Zuni started this, uh, led by Fernando Salicion, and uh, they, they sung the Sunrise Song, which is the song that the elders sing from the top of the Pueblo in, uh, in ancient Zuni. And they, it's a nice harmony song. They sung that, and everything was quite still. And then the, the Lakota hoop dancer came across, bounding across the stage. He has a single hoop, rather small, and he's twirling, and he he bounces back and forth a couple of times, and then he leaps through the hoop. It's a 
feat of uh, physical prowess of amazing, that's uh, amazing. And uh, you can hear, uh, there's a tape somewhere of that, and you can hear 30,000 people gasp. You know, it's, uh, it was a, it was as good a 25-minute show as, as has ever been done, you know, and was yeah. well accepted. Mm-hmm. There, there are other places, you know. I remember being in Sri Lanka one time with uh, the Whites. Uh, that was when Ricky Skaggs, now a country music superstar, was playing violin with him. And uh, Jerry Douglas, great dobro guitarist, was playing with him. We were going to play in an ambassador's uh, backyard, but... Uh, one of those uh, torrential rains came up, so we moved into a, 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 a inner space, a living room, a, and packed, you know, 200 or so people in there and did it all acoustic. That ambassador, after he left there, kept in touch with me for years because he was sure that, uh, that it was... It went over so well. It was so beautiful. It was so great that he thought I was some kind of special genius who <laughs> made it happen. He didn't realize it was just his having a good living room and the, mm-hmm. and the, and the moment. You know, audiences make a, a a tremendous difference. Artists feed on audiences, and audiences on artists. And if you can get a great intimacy working, it's it's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, it must have been such an experience for the audiences, but also for so many of these musicians that uh, some of them probably never had left home before, and you're taking them to these places. I know you told stories of folks like Clifton Chenier and these types of folks, and who you've taken to some exotic lands. And you know. I think that uh, one of the best things we can do, I'm supposed to make a speech about cultural diversity uh, at a UNESCO meeting in a couple of weeks, and... Uh, those that term gets used terribly loosely, you know. It gets put on all kinds of electronic uh, 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 ephemera that flies by, and it gets put on trade matters. And but I think that the thing that really matters is for people to hear each other and to meet each other, and that uh, with all of the media that we have, the face-to-face situation. The uh, uh, seeing it from a few feet away, uh, I think that it has an impact, a force, a power that's uh, never matched by anything else. And that uh, some of the best that we can do in making the world a little easier to live in is to let people really see each other. Mm-hmm. It takes down barriers. Yeah. That may sound simplistic, but I think that in the long run, matters more than any other diplomacy. You've been working in this uh, music and uh, working with so many different cultures for quite some time, I guess. Uh, all my life. All your life. Yeah. And what's your, uh, you know, a lot of people are talking about uh, sort of the future of it or the state of it. I mean, how do you see the, the how do you see uh, the state or the, you know, the health, <laughs> level of health of traditional cultures in this in this society that's become so media, you know, as such with such technology. and I think it'll outlive all of this, you know. I, I've never joined the Rescue the Perishing School of, uh, of Folklore because uh, I, I remember, uh, uh, you go back to the early recordings of uh, something like, say, Sacred Heart Music. 
the people who came to it uh, uh, and recognized that they were dealing with a with a, an old form uh, uh, were certain it was going to disappear because the singers were all middle aged or older people and this was in the 20s and in the 30s. So they hurried themselves uh, to record this, to get it down and so forth. Well, it's still here, it's still roaring along and all of the singers are still middle-aged and older. It's, uh, it's just that you have to come to that point in your life before, uh, I, I don't know whether you have to hear the hoofbeats of destiny or what the hell it is, <laughs> but uh, it's, a, it's a, a music for the older citizens. And uh, I think that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, you, you don't, the, the the ephemera, the thing that goes by so fast is the the top ten, the the flash of the moment, because it has a date stuck to it, and there's a uh, it's it's a part of uh, it's a leaf from the tree, it didn't add a ring of growth to it. It had its function. I don't put it down, but it doesn't endure the same way. It gr gets ground up and goes into mulch, and, uh, and it's, uh, it doesn't completely disappear, but it doesn't exist again in that form. Hmm. You've done, uh, I feel like, with all your work with these musicians, also with festivals and whatnot, you probably learned many, many hard lessons over the years. I think I've made most of the mistakes that anyone can make, and some of them twice, you know, because I'm not <laughs> blessed with, <laughs> with uh, getting it the first time, you know. I, sometimes I have to be hit with a big hammer twice. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, lots of festivals over the years and lots of places, lots of different organizations. Uh, um uh, I, the the thing that I've learned of, uh, is that uh, is that uh, you can put together groups of people uh, to do things, and if you in a in a city, for example, if you can get the city fathers and uh, uh, um, private organizations to work together, you can do so much more with a group of organizations than you can with single organizations. And it's better if uh, the state can work with the cities and the cities with the state and the cities with private entities. And, that, uh, and it's all guided by singular visions. There has to be somebody in there who really cares. Uh, things die, even with the best of institutions, if you don't have a a spark plug, if you don't have uh, someone in there who really, really cares and is passionate about it. That's especially true, I think, of, I think it's true literally of almost everything, but of, but of the arts, it's especially true. Mm -hmm. So much of what your work, uh, I think, is, you know, it seems that you've gotten so into politics over the years. It's really so much of this presenting these musicians and providing opportunities for these, these folks to become kind of a political act on your part. Did you ever anticipate that you'd be doing that kind of work? And you seem to have a knack for it, certainly. I've always thought that uh, uh, politics or democracy or whatever it is, I, 
I think it's important to stay involved. I, I, I worry about uh, how few people vote in this country. I, I uh, there's this. Uh, uh, I think that democracy is a terribly important form of government, and that we uh, we need to preserve and extend it. And that uh, uh, in in dealing with uh, the allocation of resources in this country, and if you're going to do what I do and what most of the people in this little field do, you um, you have to have access to some resources, and those are are controlled. Uh, by elected representatives in a lot of cases. So I've never minded taking my case to them. And if anyone was uh, stepping on some part of my anatomy, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I went over to, a, I tried to find the foot removal unit. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, here you are now, you're, uh, you said you're 67. Yeah. And hope we got a long way to go here. What do you, what do you hope to... Where do you like to focus your energies from, from here? Anything? I'm writing more now uh, and uh, having a good time and uh, keeping on doing what I've, uh, what I've done. I still find things that I'm passionate about and that it seems important to me to, that they be dealt with, and I've worked on those things. Mm -hmm. I'll keep on doing that. Yeah, wonderful. Some of these... Uh I think it's okay to say you've had some health issues over the years, and seem I'm to running keep on. on I'm running on borrowed parts. I had a kidney transplant back in 2001, and uh, yeah, I had some uh, some uh, serious health matters there for a while. But I'm I'm feeling good now, and I'm grateful to have had the the benefit of some very good medical. Uh, uh, medical help. Has these things changed your perspective at all, or in general, you feel that, or is it just? Well, you know, you uh, uh, you uh, uh, if you peer down in the abyss and see the dude down there shoveling coal, it does give you pause, and you, <laughs> and you focus a little more on on what's important to you. You know, mm -hmm. you yell down at him, says Buford, <laughs> you can go to hell. I'm not coming. <laughs> Right. I'm going to work a while. <laughs> and what are some of those things you said? Focus more on things that are important to you. I think getting some things said, you know, uh, uh, I, I'm, I am writing a little more now, and I've got a, maybe a couple of books that might get churned out in the next three or four years, if I've got three or four years. <laughs> right, right. We're, we're getting close to the... You have five more minutes. We have five more minutes. Oh my five God! Minutes. Yeah, that's a, you can go a long distance on the world speedway <laughs> in five minutes. <laughs> um, I, I, mean, I was hoping to get to talk a little bit about some of the work you did down south there. Oh, the and freedom, the civil rights. Yeah, years, but the yeah. five minutes is going to be tough. But maybe just a few words about that. I think that's such important. Times. I think that was good for me. I grew up in the mountain south, which is a little different from the deep south. And uh, I, I, my father uh, uh, inadvertently told me about injustice. There was one black farmer who lived near us, and 
He told me about the thrashing crew going past him and not taking care of him, you know, and, uh, and I asked him why. And uh, he said it was because he was black, and that didn't make sense. It was when I was a little a little guy, I remembered I remember that as my first sense of injustice. But then um, uh, I, I came of age during the civil rights uh, period, and it seemed important to me at uh, some point to involve myself in some of that. So I was down there writing. Uh, uh, part of the time, I had a, a brick thrown at me once, <laughs> and uh, had a few, you know, uh, trivial coats. But I did it. Uh, I did it for myself. You know, I don't think anybody can be free until everybody's free. And uh, and uh, the uh, uh, this country has not yet come to grips with the, the history of slavery. It really hasn't dealt with slavery yet in its, uh, its history. There, there's no great museum in this country to slavery. One of the great uh, uh, founding principles of this country was slavery. A lot of the country was built on the sweat of black people. And, uh, and in this city, with all of the museums to all of these things, there's no museum to slavery here. The city's full of black people, but... Uh, uh, I think that the country still has to deal with some of that, and uh, and just recognizing, dealing with it factually, what happened and what it was about and what its effects were. I mean, we do that now uh, by by uh, striving for equality, and I think I, in my lifetime I've seen a major shift, an unbelievable thing. Uh, uh, um, anyone who tells you that nothing has changed is full of prune juice. It has changed, and it has changed a hell of a lot. But, uh, but uh, uh, coming to grips with our history, that little turn in the mind that we need to deal with it historically hasn't happened yet. I'd like to see that happen. Any last words? I thought that was just such a nice way to finish it right there, <laughs> in true Joe fashion. <laughs> no last words. <laughs> We're not there yet. <laughs>